you up there that can't find seats, there's like 30 seats right down here in front. Just do it. We gotta, we gotta get them in a seat or we can't do it, you know? Hopefully you can find some up there, but if you're stuck and you just can't stand in the aisles, that's the, uh, fire marshal will, uh, will get us in, tr- in trouble. So there are seats around, bits and pieces of seats, but there are, I don't know, I mean, these weren't really reserved seats originally, and so we're just going to uh, come sit down. Cool. Do it, but leave your current seat and come down here. That's not good. And sorry, we're, we got a little bit behind here. Okay. Good, you guys got it. Cool. All right, we're going to do it here. Uh, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the... First presentation of the 2007-2008 Linus Pauling Memorial Lectures, which is part of Oregon Science, Technology, and Society program. My name is Terry Brill, and uh, I'm running for president of the... No, I'm not. <laughs> Stephen Colbert is running, so I'm not running. I just... <laughs> so, actually, I'm the president of the Institute for Science, Engineering, and Public Policy, and it's the institute that organized series. And I want to start by thanking our co-sponsors that make this possible. Uh, first and foremost, Mentor Graphics Corporation. It's a major corporate deal, yes. Also, Oregon Episcopal School, FEI Company, Lewis and Clark College, Pacity, the Oregon University System, which is a chancellor's office, Oregon State University, Western Oregon University, Onami, which is our nanotechnology, where your jobs are going to come from, your young people. Great outfit. Blanky um, College, Clark College in Vancouver, and Mount Hood Community College. <laughs> and then I want a special mention to, I mentioned Mentor Graphics Corporation, and also Mentor Graphics Foundation gave us a special grant, which is why a large number of students are here. So can we have a good thank you to Mentor Graphics Foundation. All right. And, okay, so cell phone check. Oh, yeah, kill your cell phones. Hang on, I was going to actually kill mine, too. I actually had a call come in one time when I was up here. Embarrassing. Okay. Uh, and also, no flashes. Uh, Dr. Sachs is kind of like, uh, his, his eyes are kind of sensitive to that sort of thing, so uh, if, he, if you do flash it, then we have to pause until his vision comes back, so... I'm not a good thing. Uh, the, also, the program's 90 minutes, and it's my preference, unless you have to run out to get your babysitter, that you don't say, oh, the formal lecture's over, I think I'll get up and walk out. But if you do have to get up and leave, please do it quietly, and uh, preferably don't. It's just a point of etiquette and, and not to uh, bother, you know, trouble the people around you. Um, also, uh, Dr. Sachs has agreed to do, uh, to sign books, if you haven't already, if you have bought a book out there, He's after after the lecture, after the Q and A. He's going to be out in the lobby. And he's going to sign books and personalize them if you already have one and stuff. So he'll be there for a while doing that, and your book will thereby become hugely more valuable. Uh, there are three uh, mics that we're just going to use microphones because there's so many. So there's one there, one over there, and one up above when we go into the Q and A part. Uh, and I, I beg your indulgence. I have two quick things we we need to do here. One is if uh, as you came in, you got a. Um, a brochure if you hadn't already received one. But many people, uh, or not many, many of you have single tickets and you may not have known that this was a series. 
uh, and we want to encourage you to uh, upgrade to the series. So that's why that's there. And, uh, and, and so you might not have known that how wonderful this was, and particularly by the end of the evening, be so impressed that you'll want to buy a season ticket. And uh, so that's what that's there for. And you, you, you get the season ticket discount even though you didn't get it at the beginning. So that's cool. Um, Oh, one last thing. So, if you're and, and some people who buy season tickets, they go like, "Oh, wait a minute! I'm going to be in tow or Fiji in January. I want to miss that one." So, so we have a backup for a DVD you can get of the talk uh, if you are a season subscriber. So there you have it. Okay, now we have this survey thing in the program, which you've got the blue thing, and there are pencils around that the people have pencils. Of. So. Um, uh, my friend Bruce Schaefer came with the idea that we needed some feedback, so we're going to have feedback. So this is your opportunity to uh, say whatever it is that you want to say. And particularly what we're trying to do here, one of the hidden agendas in all this is to, is to inspire students uh, to reach for the stars uh, in intellectually and so forth. And so well, the question is, is this serving that purpose to some extent? And I guess that's the core question, but the, the questionnaire has uh, a number of things on there. And if you don't happen to be a student, this is for both the high school students, the community college students that are here, and the college students to give your thoughts, comments, whatever. Also, if you don't happen to be one of those categories, it's there for you to make your comments anyway. Say, hey, why don't you bring in so-and-so uh, as a speaker rather than somebody else or anything you want to say to us. We'll, we'll read all those. And uh, for the students, uh, uh, Bruce, in his wisdom, to bribe them to make sure you do this, is they will, if you are a student, you can get a, they're going to do a drawing for an iPod. iPod shuffle. So that will inspire you. And when you got those done in the end, you can uh, uh, just drop them. The ushers will pick them up as you go out, or you can drop them on the table out there, the book table or something, as you go out. Okay. Sorry about that, but uh, thanks, Bruce. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. That's enough. All right. So now... In the uh, as these things happen, like what we're going to fun things going to happen tonight and the rest of the series. The reason this is happening in Portland is because there are a few individuals who, when uh, people like me who are uh, obscure people on the street raise their hand and say, "Wouldn't this be a good idea?" There are certain influential people who are in a position to go like, "Yeah, that's a good idea. We should do that." And I really think these people. I call them champions in the community, and they're very important people, and they're people who. We wouldn't be here if it wasn't for the people. And there are 100 people that could do it, and there are like three or four or five that actually do do it. And so I want to honor one of those people tonight and just uh, a guy named George Pernsteiner, who happens to be the chancellor of the Oregon University System, who I managed to, uh, to uh, convince to do the introduction of uh, Dr. Sachs tonight. But I just want to mention one thing. George was started out, he told me, his, uh, as a major in college. He started out as a music major. And now he's a chancellor of the university, so I just want to point that out. So uh, please welcome George Pernstein. Thank you, Terry. And thank you, all of you, for being here this evening. This is going to be an exciting, an interesting, a stimulating, a fascinating, you-fill-in-the-adjective evening largely because each of you brings to this evening 
your own quest for knowledge and understanding. Now, I'm here to introduce Dr. Oliver Sacks. And in the normal course of events, since I'm sort of from the academy, I would note that he is the uh, currently a professor of clinical, clinical neurology and psychiatry and university professor at Columbia University. That's impressive, that's important, and that probably means something to me and five other people in this room. Each of you have read the biography of Dr. Sachs that's in the program. So each of you knows that Dr. Oliver Sachs has spent his adult life working with and helping people who suffer from some of the most debilitating brain conditions imaginable, from sleeping sickness to Alzheimer's to Tourette's syndrome. The New York Times has called him the Poet Laureate Medicine. But what is it that gives this man, the author of nine best-selling books, and the holder of more awards and honors than you can count, the soul of a poet with the mind of a scientist? Someone this evening who has read all of Dr. Sachs's books and heard him speak before talked of his ability to see hope, hope for every patient, his ability to see the person within the human being, regardless of what affliction that human being might suffer. That makes Dr. Sachs a remarkable physician, but he is more. This newly minted Columbia University professor, in fact, so newly minted, he told me he does not yet have an office at Columbia, which I'm told is a condition for my own faculty that too many of them suffer as well. Uh, Dr. Sachs is forever curious, forever questing. He told me this evening he has never worked with schizophrenia. And now, in his 75th year, he is embarking on yet another search for knowledge and yet another connection with people. Dr. Sachs tonight will speak about his new book, Musicophilia, in which he says that music is part of being human. Intuitively, we know this, but Dr. Sachs has had the insight and the commitment to link music to giving hope and solace to people afflicted with disease. That is his genius, but that is also his humanity. It is my privilege and honor to introduce to you Dr. Oliver Sachs. Um, uh, thank you very much, Chancellor. Um, you must tell me if I'm audible or too loud or too soft. Can you hear me up there? Okay. <laughs> um, it's uh, it's uh, a great pleasure being in this gorgeous theatre again, uh, although I confess I'm slightly terrified at, at seeing the serried rows of you going up to the ceiling. Um, and it's a great pleasure being in Portland again, which has been a favorite city of mine 
for ever since I came to the States in 1960. And, it's, um, and of course, it's a great book city with Powell's and, um, uh, and it's an incredible public library system. I was last at theatre five years ago when my book Uncle Tungsten had been published, These Memories of a Chemical Boyhood. And, um, and of course, in my chemical boyhood, one of my heroes was Linus Pauling. Um, and Linus Pauling, as all of you, most of you know, uh, spent his chemical boyhood here in Portland and he lived here between the ages of 9 and 17. And when I was last here, Terry Bristol took me to his house, uh, where he did all sorts of dangerous, fascinating experiments. Um, and I hope that will be turned into a, a museum sometime, because uh, he really is one of, one of the greatest Oregonians. Um, uh, music. I, I'm one of the least musical of a musical family. Um, uh, when I grew up, uh, there were two pianos in the house. My brothers played clarinets and flutes. We used to have uh, chamber music in the house. And, um, and Bach, always Bach. So that when I was five, when I was up what were my favorite things in the world, I said, smoke salmon and bach. Um, um, and even if you don't approve of bach being in the northwest, you should approve smoked salmon. <laughs> um, uh, now, my, um, my father and one of my brothers were extremely musical and I think could have been professionals. I was much less so, but I think I was in a better state than William James who um, writes who in the 1500 pages of his Principles of Psychology has a single sentence and that rather dismissive about music. Uh, he talks about the susceptibility to music. He says it has no zoological utility. <laughs> it corresponds to no object in the natural environment. It is a pure incident of having a hearing organ just so with the susceptibility to seasickness. Um, I, um, uh, but, um, no, but obviously, um, for whatever reasons, I may come back to this later, uh, music exists and is central in every culture known to us, um, central in religious life, in um, play life, in aesthetic life, uh, in every form of activity, uh, bone flutes and other instruments going back 50,000 years have um, been found. Um, music seems to be an essential part of the human condition. And even if it doesn't have zoological utility, whatever that means, uh, it has great cultural utility and roles. Um, but as James says, the susceptibility to music varies quite a lot. And there are a number of people who, though they may love music, um, are a bit tone deaf. And um, uh, they may sing exuberantly in the bath in a way which delights them 
and is vaguely disturbing to, to other people. Um, the, um, um, I confess I was rather, um, uh, uh, rather pushed away from religious practice some years ago. Uh, there was a small temple, a small synagogue in the Bronx where I lived, uh, where there was a tone-deaf cantor. Um, um, but he was very ambitious and he loved music and he loved he fancied himself as a cantilator and, um, uh, and cantilation often involves elaborate sort of tonal excursions elaborate tonal journeys and one should return to the starting point uh, he'd end up half an octave away and, um, and, I, and, I, and um, uh, I would sort of leave in a state of acoustic agony and <laughs> And I never went back. And um, the, uh, there used to be a famous coloratura in New York called Florence Foster Jenkins, who again regarded herself as a great operatic uh, soprano. She was excruciatingly out of tune, um, but she had a great following. And whether this was despite that or because of that, I don't think she ever realized what a... Uh, well, what a ludicrous figure she was, but she was, um, she was great theatre as well. Um, but um, much more rarely, there is a sort of lack of musical perception or amusia, which is so severe that people can't recognise any music and in some sense don't know what is meant by music. Um, I first encountered this in a colleague uh, a French colleague, Lermite, a neurologist, and he told me that if he heard music, he could either say it was the Marseillaise or it wasn't. Um, uh, unfortunately, I forgot to ask him how he could tell whether it was the Marseillaise. Uh, I suspect it was because people sort of saluted or, or, or stood to attention. Um, but I... Um, I'm going to take the liberty of reading from my book, Musicophilia, a little bit about a, um, a woman I met with this condition of amusia, uh, Dolores, Dolores, an intelligent, young-looking 76-year-old woman who had never heard music, she said, although she was able to recognize um, uh, all voices and all other sounds. It was only music which was out. She said that when she was in kindergarten, children were asked to sing their names. But she couldn't do this, and she didn't know what was meant by singing. Nor could she perceive what the other children were doing. In the second and third grade, she said there was a music appreciation class in which various pieces, including the William Tell Overture, were played. She couldn't recognize any of them. Her father got a Victrola, and records so that she could study them, but she still couldn't recognize any of them. He played them again and again, she said, but it didn't help. He also got her a little toy piano that could be played by numbers. And in this way, she said, she, she learned to play Mary Had a Little Lamb and Frère Jacques, while having no sense that she was producing anything but noise. If others played the songs, she couldn't tell whether they made mistakes. If she herself made a mistake, she could tell, but only by feeling it in the fingers, not by hearing. And she came from a very musical family. 
And her mother in particular would accuse her and say, what have you got against music? Why can't you enjoy it like everyone else? And um, she suffered under this burden of accusation for, really, for a lifetime. Um, and she, she did her best to, to like music. Um, uh, one family friend who was a hearing specialist tried to do some tests with her, and he found that she really couldn't tell if one note was higher or lower than another. She couldn't hear semitones or tones. Basically, she lacked the building blocks from which melody is made, from which music is made. Um, although her sense of rhythm was good, but there was no sense of tonality. Um, at school, she became fond of war songs. This was in the 1940s. I recognized them because of their words. Anything with words is okay. Um, I asked her what she did experience when music was played. And she said, if you were in my kitchen and threw all the pots and pans on the floor, that's what I hear. Um, going back to her school days, she said she couldn't recognize the Star Spangled Banner. I had to wait until others stood up. So that was probably how it was with Lermite. She failed to recognize Happy Birthday even though when she became a school teacher, she had to play a recording writ 30 or 40 times a year uh, whenever her students had a birthday. Um, later she mentioned to me that her mother had had a stroke and had been admitted to a nursing home and that all sorts of music, uh, all sorts of activities, but especially music, um, delighted and calmed her. But she said that if she were in the same position, music would make her worse, would drive her mad. And then seven or eight years ago, um, this puzzle lady saw an article in the New York Times saying that some researchers in Canada uh, were working on this condition or had described a similar condition. And she said to her husband, that's me. And she got in touch with the people in Canada. They came down, they tested her in great detail and they told her, yes, this is not a neurotic thing, you have nothing against music, this is a real condition, it's a neurological condition. And she was very relieved to be told this, because in a way she'd suffered under a sort of guilt all her life that she, that she had something against music. She was asked if anybody else had the same condition, and they said yes, a few people, and so she was introduced to some brothers and sisters in amusia. You know, one of the distressing things if one has a condition of any sort is to think that one's unique. First to think that one is a fraud, and then to think one is unique. And so they reassured her on both of these. They also said, stop going to concerts. <laughs> um, she'd spent an entire lifetime being either bored or excruciated by music. They said, if your husband asks you, say, you go, I'll go to the movies. And she said she wished she had been given that advice when she was seven <laughs> and not 70. Um, the, um, the people in Montreal who worked on this have now discovered that all people with this congenital amusia have a particular anatomical anomaly with, uh, uh, in the frontal lobe on the right side of the brain.
Um, I, I wondered for a moment if it would be anything but water, which is why. In the darkness here, it looked a little like white wine, and I, I, I hoped it might be. Um, now, um, uh, um, uh, recently, in the last few years, it's become possible to look at the brain in life and also to do functional imaging when people are listening to music, imagining music, hallucinating music, composing music. And there's been a lot of work on the brains of musicians and others. Um, in particular, a man called Schlaug in Harvard has done fascinating studies for some years and has really shown the enormous effect which music can have even on the, on the growth of various parts of the brain um, and in a way which is quite visible. Um, part of the brain called the corpus callosum, which connects the two halves of the brain, becomes enlarged in professional musicians. Uh, the auditory parts of the brain become enlarged. Some of the motor parts of the brain become enlarged, because whenever one listens to music, even if one doesn't actually visibly keep time, the brain is keeping time. Um, and although looking at brains, you can't say... He's an Einstein, this is a theoretical physicist, this is a visual artist, that's a writer, this is a politician, this is a university chancellor. Um, you can say, this is a musician. Uh, the brains of musicians, especially performing musicians, show changes which are visible even to the naked eye. Um, and these are also changes which can occur quite rapidly, so that if one does five-finger exercises, in minutes you can pick up changes in the brain. And with the intensive musical training, the Suzuki training given to children, you can see huge changes in the brain in a year. And so this brings out both the plasticity of the brain and the, and the power of music. Um, and also the fact that a great deal of the brain is involved in the response to music, both in perceiving the rhythm, the pitch, all the different attributes of music, and in the huge emotional response to music. Um, really much more of the brain than is involved in the perception of language. Um, there are 20 or 30 different parts of the brain which are involved in the response to music, and these are not the same in any, in any two people. And they sometimes, and I'm indicating, sort of alter at different times in one's life. Um, now, I... Um, the memory for music, uh, or one's musicality, um, such as it is, um, partly because it is so widely distributed in the brain, tends to survive all sorts of neurological mishaps, including Alzheimer's disease, which can do so much damage in every other way. And um, uh, um, one of the... Um, uh, another person whom I talk about uh, in my book... Um, showed this to a most remarkable degree. His daughter had written to me uh, in the first place about her father, a man called Woody Geist. She said he began to show signs of Alzheimer's 13 years before, when he was 67. And she went on to say the plaque 
has apparently invaded a large amount of his brain and he can't remember much of anything about his life. However, he remembers the baritone part to almost every song he has ever sung. He has performed with a 12-man a cappella group for almost 40 years. Music is one of the only things that keep him grounded in this world. He has no idea what he did for a living, where he is living now, or what he did, or what he did ten minutes ago. Almost every memory is gone, except for the music. She went on to say, in fact, he opened for the Radio City Music Hall this past November. The evening he performed, he had no idea how to tie a tie. He got lost on his way to the stage. But the performance, perfect, perfect. He performed beautifully and remembered all the parts and words. Um, and then, uh, a few weeks later, I had the pleasure of meeting Mr. Geist. He came along with his wife and, and the daughter who had written to me. He was carrying a newspaper with him, a, a neatly furled New York Times. So, at first I thought this, you know, this, this looks very normal. He had no idea, however, what the New York Times was or indeed what a newspaper was, and yet the act of carrying it was, was perfectly done. This, this came out in, in other ways. He'd been a very, very good tennis player. He no longer knew what a tennis racket was, but if he was on a court and given a racket and a ball lobbed in his direction, then he'd really, you know, give a mean shot back. So this was someone who preserved actions but had lost events and facts. Um, when I asked him how he was, he replied pleasantly, I think I'm in good health. This reminded me of how Emerson, after he became severely demented, would answer such questions by saying, quite well, I've lost my mental faculties, but I'm perfectly well. Um, you know, it's a it's a pity in this age, which is so in which things are so medicalized and so full of shame and stigma, mortification. You know, this this cheery attitude about dementia, you know, uh, is you know, is admirable. Um, indeed, there was an Emersonian sweetness and reasonableness and serenity in Woody. He was profoundly demented, without doubt, but he'd preserved his character, his courtesy his thoughtfulness, um, all the behaviors of civility were there, as well, of course, as these formidable powers of musical performance. Um, and then I, um, I asked him if he would sing, and, um, uh, and he did so with his... Um, when he came in, he'd sort of been... Um, uh, he'd been whistling... Uh, um, and uh, so then, then I um, I asked him to to sing, um, and he sang beautifully and sensitively, and turning to his wife and daughter, and he seemed totally himself and totally present. Then, uh, although seconds later he was this deeply, this charming but sort of deeply confused man. Um, now, so this is really very extraordinary, and one wonders what what goes on. Um, how can you preserve a power of musical performance when, you, when you've lost basically all memory of your life, 
or autobiographic memory or memory of who you are. And yet you become who you are. You still have a performance identity. Um, I've seen this in, in other spheres. I recently met an actor, a very eminent actor with amnesia, who again remembers very little of his life and has lost a lot of his general knowledge, but all his acting skills, which are consummate, and his huge Shakespearean repertoire, they're all there. And what seems to happen is, here I think one has a different form of memory. Uh, psychologists call it procedural memory. Um, and um, whereas the memory for events and the memory for facts depend on networks of the cerebral cortex, and as such can be destroyed in in something like Alzheimer's, the memory for performance is lodged deep down in the brain and the subcortex and what are called the basal ganglia, the cerebellum, and basically that's with you for life. It is indestructible. Um, and although it's in these primitive parts of the brain, uh, it doesn't mean that, that this comes up in a mechanical way. It may come up automatically, so as soon as you started Woody on something, he could continue, but then all of his sensitivity was was there, the whole performance. Um, so, um, you know, after seeing someone like Woody, I have the feeling that all of us should have some forms of performance which will still be with us if we lose our cortex. Um, you know, and I, I, I'm at an age where one is haunted by thoughts of losing one's cortex. Um, and um, and much else. Um, uh, as, as I said that, I, I thought I'd lost my notes, but now I've now I've found them. Um, the um, um, although I grew up in a musical household and music is personally important to me. I have to listen to it every day, and I, I have a piano, I have to play it a bit every day. I wouldn't like anyone to hear my playing, but, um, but it's necessary for me. Um, I only became, as a neurologist and as a physician, intrigued by music uh, when I saw the responses of various patients to it. And this really started in the 1960s with the patients whom I later wrote about in Awakenings, the profoundly Parkinsonian patients. And these were patients who often couldn't initiate any movement or any speech, who would be transfixed or frozen in strange postures. But music could liberate them. When music was played, they would be able to dance, they would be able to sing, they would be able to move. They, um, they were released from their Parkinsonism, apparently, uh, although as soon as the music stopped, they would, they would sort of freeze up and start bend and start shaking again. Um, at that time, this was in the late 1960s, I knew W.H. Auden, the poet, uh, who was intensely musical himself. He'd written the libretto to the Magic Flute and many other operas. And also his father had been a physician in England and a pioneer describer of the sleepy sickness, this condition. And when I brought him along, he was amazed by what he saw. And he quoted something from the German poet, Novalis, who said, every disease is a musical problem and every cure a musical solution. 
Um, I mean, this seemed to hit be right on the spot so far as Parkinson's was concerned, although I guess it's sort of metaphorical otherwise. Um, the uh, Another, you know, also patients with Alzheimer's, even if they're not highly talented like Woody Geist, will recognize music and respond to music however severe their diseases and long after they've lost words and lost logical thought and when they may be disoriented and vacant and terrified or agitated uh, or withdrawn music can call to them um, for them it has to be usually songs familiar songs with people with Parkinsonism the rhythm is all important the music doesn't have to be familiar um, for people with dementia one wants familiar music which will bring back the past, which will carry some of the past with it and its moods and its lucidity. And um, people with Alzheimer's, again, the effect of music doesn't stop immediately. It may go on for a few, a few hours afterwards. And certainly in the, in the hospitals where I work, music therapy is very crucial. Um, I also have patients who've had strokes or head injuries and have lost the power of language and are aphasic. Um, but interestingly, although some of these people are mute and cannot utter a word in the ordinary way, most of them are able to sing and sometimes to sing the lyrics of a song. And in itself, this is very reassuring because it shows them that language is still there in them, even if it's apparently locked or embedded in music. And um, there's been some fascinating work recently. Uh, this is very intensive work, um, uh, but uh, it's possible, uh, at least with many such patients, to uh, use, the mu use the language embedded in songs for the brain to reacquire language, and sometimes to do that with the right hemisphere of the brain, even when the original language areas, the speech areas in the left hemisphere of the brain, have been destroyed. So this is a different and much more complex use of music. It's not just an immediate motor or emotional or, uh, uh, reaction to music. It's um, a very complex act of learning and reorganizing the brain is involved in this. Um, uh, music can have some negative powers as well. Um, I think um, uh, um, everyone, I think even people who have difficulty evoking a tune on command have involuntary musical imagery. Tunes go through the head. Uh, I think one often doesn't realize how much of one's mental life consists of tunes. Um, I certainly didn't realize this until I started writing the book, and then I kept discovering that music was going through my head. Um, sometimes I could, um, most times I could identify the music and also find why it was going through my head. Sometimes I, I couldn't. Uh, sometimes it was something, you know, in the immediate context. Sometimes it was a memory, a mood, something which someone had said. But occasionally this constant inner music uh, 
can take on a pathological quality and can keep repeating itself again and again and again and again until it has lost um, any sense or any beauty it had and it gets into a loop and goes around again and again. Um, and this is somewhat exploited by makers of advertising jingles uh, and television programs and theme songs. These are designed to catch the brain, to hook the brain. The term used in the music industry for these is, is earworms. Um, I think of them as brain worms because they sort of bore their way into the brain and, 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 uh, and keep going there. Um, I'd, um, I, if I can find it here, um, uh, one of my friends described this. Nick, Nick Eunice, how he'd become fixated on the song Love and Marriage a tune written by James Van Heusen. A single hearing of the song, a single hearing of it, a Frank Sinatra rendition uses the theme song of the television show Married with Children, was enough to hook Nick. He, quote, got trapped inside the tempo of the song. It ran in his mind almost constantly for ten days. With incessant repetition, it soon lost its charm, its lilt, its musicality, and its meaning. It interfered with his schoolwork, his thinking, his peace of mind, his sleep. He tried to stop it in a number of ways, all to no avail. I jumped up and down. I counted up to a hundred. I splashed water on my face. I tried talking loudly to myself, plugging my ears. Anyhow, finally it faded away, but as soon as he told me the story, it came back. <laughs> Um, so, um, um, there's, um, uh, there have been some studies doing functional brain imaging while people have these things going on, and you can sort of see a, a loop of activity involving auditory and motor cortex going round and round and round, um, and it really becomes like a sort of an electrical musical parasite in the brain. Um, and these things are highly contagious. Um, uh, Mark Twain wrote a fascinating story in the 18th, back in the 1870s uh, about, about such an earworm uh, which someone heard again after a single hearing and he found it, it altered his footsteps, it kept him awake. He finally confessed this to his pastor and his pastor was then infected with the earworm. And when the pastor told the story to his congregation, everyone in his congregation was infected. And, I mean, earworms have sometimes been called infectious musical viruses. Um, and um, I, I suspect that they're getting commoner because music is so, is so ubiquitous everywhere. I'm not sure how it is in Portland, but in New York, every shop, every mall, every restaurant, every bar, every gym, every swimming pool has music. And you can't ask for it to be turned off. People take this as an insult to their creativity. And, of course, everyone is plugged in to iPods. Um, I, um, I've mixed feelings about 
uh, about some of this wonderful technology. I mean, it is wonderful if it's used in the right way. It's incredible that in something the size of a of a matchbox, you know, one can have the the world's best music and be able to hear it with incredible fidelity. Um, there's a danger that one can... Well, first, there's a danger one can play it too loud. And, in fact, there's really a dawning, a starting epidemic of juvenile deafness, which, which, which probably goes with iPods. Um, you know, the little hair cells in the ears could only take so much. And if you put on the iPod, if you turn it on loud enough to obliterate all external noise at 90 or 100 decibels, you're going to lose your hearing. Um, but also, if it's on at 90 or 100 decibels, you're not aware of the traffic, you're not aware of anyone else, and um, I actually have a personal thing against this, because some months ago, I, I'm fond of cycling, and, I, um, and uh, there's a special cycle path in New York, and I was going along there, and um, there was a woman listening with an iPod, you know, with that, that terrible look of, of concentration and withdrawal and disengagement, which people can have. And I rang my bicycle bell, didn't hear it. I have a loud klaxon, she didn't hear it. I have a whistle, a police whistle, she didn't hear it. And then she walked in front of me, and I had to stop, and I went over the handlebars. Um, not a good thing in one's 70s. Well, not good in one's 20s. Um, the, um, so, um, so beware music which is too loud and, and too, too involving. Um, and um, uh, actually, one wonders what, what will happen because when Mark Twain wrote, there wasn't that much music around. You had to go to church, you had to go to a concert unless you had a, a piano at home or something like this. And then, of course, say in the 1920s or so, there was a, a quantum leap uh, with radio and recording. And now there's another quantum leap with, with iPods and, uh, and, and, and music everywhere. Um, the... Um, Something which comes into my mind, which I wasn't going to mention, but I think I will now. Um, among the a rare adverse effect of music is that it can produce seizures, epileptic seizures, in some people. Um, I have one patient who was found unconscious with a bitten tongue by the radio, and all she could say was um, they'd been playing a Neapolitan song. She was very fond of it, but then she had a strange feeling, and that's all she remembered. Um, um, no one paid any attention to this story, but when she had a second seizure, also associated with a Neapolitan song, um, anyhow, this woman comes from a large Sicilian family, Near Sicilian and Neapolitan songs are always being played, especially at family weddings and she has about 30 seconds to get away, to block her ears and get away. Um, in her case, it's only Neapolitan songs, but sometimes this can spread, and there was a famous Russian music critic, Nikonov, who, um, uh, at the end of the 19th century, had a seizure while listening to a Rimsky-Korsakov opera. 
Well, there's Winsky Korsakoff, you expect a seizure. Um, uh, you, um, but then he started having seizures in response to other music. And then in the street, so if he heard a military band, he would have to block his ears and run for the nearest doorway. Finally, he had to leave Moscow and go to a little village where there was only the quacking of geese and, and the lowing of cows. Um, and... Um, but anyhow, having talked about the ubiquity of music, I can't help thinking, uh, thinking of that. Um, but there is a much commoner situation, and I have had correspondence with or seen literally hundreds of people with musical hallucinations. Now, this is different from music running in the head with a musical hallucination. <laughs> Hear that? You know, the person is convinced that the music is real, that it has an external source. It is indistinguishable from perception. One never mixes up musical imagery with perception. You know, you, you know that your earworms are your earworms. But um, oh, with a musical hallucination, you're certain it comes from outside, although then you will look around to see if there's a band, to see if there's a radio, to see if there's a television on, and only when you can't find an external source you will realize that something is going on in your head. You have a radio in your head, or an iPod in your head. Or as a man in the 1890s said, a music box in his head. It's interesting, the, the technology of the time sort of is, always gets into the metaphors which, which people use. Um, now, this is very frightening to people uh, and startling because normally one doesn't hallucinate. One has no experience of hallucination. And hallucination itself is, a, is an ominous word. You say, you know, hearing things, and I go crazy. So interestingly, nine people out of ten who have musical hallucinations keep it to themselves. You know, um, we could have a secret ballot tonight. Uh, to see how many of you have this. If it's secret, you'll maybe acknowledge it, even though you might not acknowledge it to your husband or your wife or your doctor or anyone else. Um, these musical hallucinations, however, are not like psychotic hallucinations. They're not like hearing voices. If you hear voices, the voices are accusing, persecuting, seductive, whatever. Uh, they're addressed to you, and, um, uh, and they, are, they are very frightening. Whereas musical, the music of musical hallucinations is usually often hymns, popular songs one heard in one's childhood, which are now being regurgitated by the brain for some reason and are playing. Um, something like um, 90, 85 or 90 percent of the people with musical hallucinations are, are moderately or severely deaf. And sometimes it seems that a further critical loss of hearing will set these off. The brain has got to be active. And if the auditory parts of the brain aren't getting enough input through the ears, then they're going to create uh, sound for themselves. Though interestingly, the sound they create is always music. It's not noises for the most part. And it's not voices. Um, I think I should maybe... Um, read you again uh, this again was a letter which was sent to me I, I love getting letters and um, uh, at least I love getting certain letters 
um, you know, in which people sort of share experiences. It's a great privilege. And, you know, and I will always respond and try and see the person when, when if I can. So this was a letter in 1995 from June B. Again, a charming and creative woman of 70. And she talked about what was happening, how it first started last November when I was visiting my sister and brother-in-law one night. After turning off the TV and preparing to retire, I started hearing Amazing Grace. It was being sung by a choir over and over again. I checked with my sister to see if they had some church service on TV, but they had Monday night football or some such. So I went onto the deck overlooking the water. The music followed me. I looked down on the quiet coastline and the few houses with lights and realized that the music couldn't possibly be coming from anywhere in the area. It had to be in my head. And then she enclosed what she called her playlist. Um, the incidentally, another patient of mine once talked about his intracranial jukebox. Um, uh, um, uh, it is typical that when people have this, uh, they cannot turn it off. They can sometimes switch from one tune to another if there's some similarity of rhythm or melody or, or theme. And um, anyhow, with M Mrs. B and her her playlist beside Amazing Grace, she would hear the Battle Hymn of the Republic, Beethoven's Ode to Joy, the drinking song from La Traviata, <laughs> a tisket a tasket, and, quote, a really dreary version of We Three Kings of Orient are. <laughs> One night, she continued, I heard a splendidly solemn rendition of Old MacDonald Had a Farm, followed by thunderous applause. At that moment, I decided that I, as I was obviously completely bonkers, I'd better have the matter looked into. Well, she had the matter looked into. Uh, as a start, she'd read that people with Lyme disease sometimes had musical hallucinations. She didn't have that. She checked the medicine cabinet. She'd read that people who, um, who took too much aspirin could get such hallucinations. She had a detailed medical and neurological checkup, and nothing turned up. Also, she wasn't deaf. I saw her relatively recently, and it's now ten years later. Um, she still has them. She's, um, she's fairly much at home with them now. They haven't gone away, but she's reached a sort of agreement. And it's very interesting that one can reach an accommodation with something like this. Um, I mean, there's some people, indeed, who who really become fond of the hallucinations and sing along with them. Uh, <laughs> And they may teach the hallucinations new music. Um, um, I mean, what is brought out by everybody who has these is that is that not only like perception, um, but they they have a detail and a vividness which is uh, which amazes them, uh, and uh, they wouldn't have thought that the brain contains such accurate memories 
of the music, which which could then be, you know, be played like that. Um, sometimes, however, the music isn't so nice. Uh, I saw another man um, who'd originally only heard music when he was in a plane. It would be like an elaboration of the sound of the plane engine. But uh, on one occasion, when he got off the plane, the music continued. And it had been going on for several weeks when I saw him. And I said, well, what's the music like? And he made a gesture of disgust and said, tonal and corny. And I said, that's, that's an odd choice of adjectives. You know, what do you mean? He said his wife was a composer of atonal music and his own tastes were for Schoenberg. And, um, and, and really had rather, rather elevated sort of elitist uh, tastes. But what he heard, he'd been born in Germany in the 1920s. First of all, was German lullabies. Uh, he said uh, of a disgusting, cloying sweetness <laughs> and sentimentality. But th- these were then followed by Nazi marching songs. And these terrified him because as a boy growing up in Hamburg in the, in the 1930s, you know, he had been always on the lookout for the Hitler Jugend who, you know, who were ready to attack a Jewish boy like him. And, but then those passed and after that he started to hear bits of Tchaikovsky's Fifth Symphony. But he said that wasn't to his taste either. Um, too emotional, rhapsodic. Um, um, occasionally children may get these as well I saw one nine year old boy who, uh, and his father told me that when his son was four sometimes sitting in the back of the car he would block his ears and scream to his father to turn the car radio off when it wasn't on um, this is a, this um, actually is a highly highly gifted boy musically and and I suppose at a very early age one might be perhaps uncertain of what, what's internal, what's external. There's some interesting stories of Tchaikovsky as a, as a child um, saying, take the music out of my head or something like that. Um, but these, um, uh, but we, you know, the sensitivity, the susceptibility to music can, can take this strange form of musical hallucinations. Um, now, um, I, I, I was given a watch here, and I have another watch here, and I, I haven't looked at either of them, and I, um, I, I suppose I should be winding up somehow. Now, I've touched on just a few subjects. My book has 29 sections, and I'd be perfectly happy to talk about the other 25. Um, I, I mean, there are all sorts of things from absolute pitch to musical savants to synesthesia, people who hear color or taste taste when they hear music. Um, uh, I mean, basically, what I've, um, I'm not a musician. I'm not a theorist of music. I'm not really a neuroscientist, although I am deeply interested in, in the new powers to to visualize the brain as people are listening to music, imagining music. Basically, I'm a physician and a storyteller and a naturalist. And, um, 
uh, and to mention another aspect of William James besides the, the principles, he wrote another book called The Varieties of Religious Experience. And in a way, my book is about some of the varieties of musical experience, um, although connected wherever possible with, with what's going on in the brain. Um, the, um, I don't speculate too much. It's my strength and my narrowness that I tend to stick fairly closely to experiences which people have told me about, occasionally experiences which I've had myself. Um, I, uh, I throw a few of my own musical experiences, including a couple of musical hallucinations, into the book as well. Um, Stephen Pinker calls music auditory cheesecake. Uh, he again regards it as, as something trivial of, of really of, of, of no biological relevance um, and, uh, and a sort of hanger-on to language. I, I beg to differ there uh, for many reasons. First, the fact that music is so central and so important in every culture known to us, and it is also for most individuals. Um, but also, if one tries to find an aspect, it's important to, see, to say, are there aspects of music which have no analogue in speech? Um, and there's one such aspect which comes immediately to mind, and this has to do with rhythm or beat, and the regular pulse of music. I, I mean, language has rhythm and beat, but it's of a different, a different sort. Um, and the fact that we spontaneously and irresistibly keep time with that. You see children dancing to the beat. It, it just had no one taught them. It happens spontaneously. You cannot know, you never see a chimpanzee dancing to its own inner drama. Um, no other animal uh, but human beings spontaneously synchronized to a beat in this sort of way. And one suspects that this as a start, this rhythmic aspect, this rhythmic motor aspect, which of course is the aspect which is so crucial for people with Parkinson's because they can't move until they hear a beat. Um, but one suspects that this must go back a very long way and um, must have been very advantageous because people dance together, they sing together, they play together, they hunt together, and, and the beat has great powers of bonding people and synchronizing them. And so even if, as James says, there is no zoological utility, whatever that means, there's huge cultural utility. Um, Darwin, by the way, thought that music had preceded language. Um, maybe I can quote him. Uh, I don't have the glasses. Um, uh, Darwin. Yeah. Um, um, where William James had one sentence on music in the entire principles, Darwin has an entire chapter on music, a very fascinating one, in The Descent of Man, and he wonders whether musical tones and rhythms were perhaps used by our half-human ancestors during the season of courtship when animals of all kinds are excited not only by love, but by strong passions of jealousy, rivalry, and triumph. And Darwin imagined that speech arose secondary to music. Um, well, we'll, we, we, we'll never know there. Um, but I, um, 
Uh, but we can be sure that, that music is central in human life and that a huge amount of the brain is devoted to it um, and, um, and that is a great wonder there's no art like it because on the one hand music has no power to describe you can't describe a podium musically um, there's no power of representation but there's an overwhelming power to evoke emotions, moods states of mind, thoughts which sometimes can't be evoked in any other way music goes down to the very core of one's being and uh, I think this is why one can't do without it um, well I think I've probably filled my time now so I'm going to thank you for your attention and I'll be open to your questions thank you You, you may have to because I won't be able to hear him. Oh, right. Can I go ahead up there? Right. Um, right. Can I go ahead up, up top? Um, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Dr. Sachs. That was very interesting. Over the last five years, there have been a number of studies and books that have come out of the animal behavior field. Uh, some ingenious studies of bamboo societies in the wild. And uh, one of the conclusions that is coming out of this is that social living probably did not cause language to evolve, but rather tool use seems to have triggered the development of language. That um, the necessity to tell others in the group how tools work uh, triggers both the development of language and also the theory of mind, because you have to have an idea of what other people know and don't know. Well, musical instruments are tools. A very old ones you pointed out. So I wonder if you could speculate about the, uh, the possible role that musical instruments may have played in the development of the hominid brain. Um, um, well, I, I could. I don't know that I would be very, very convincing doing so. Um, but uh, um, first, with regard to music and communication, uh, Rousseau, who was a composer, as well as a writer, you know, thought there might be an original form of communication which was at once musical and verbal, and that they only, the two of them only separated. Um, but I, uh, no, I, I really can't speculate except to say I think that's a, you know, a very sweet idea, and that you know, musical instruments were probably among the first. But I, I think I may need questions which are closer to my own experience because I wasn't there. Um, I am. Um, um, I wonder if time travel will ever become possible. It would be lovely to know what was actually happening with our half-human ancestors. And also, one, one would like to know what will happen with our, our half-human descendants. <laughs> Thank you. Um, as the brain processes information, it has to deal with the data coming from outside the body and inside. 
but some people have a condition called tinnitus, which is sort of a bias on which all of this data rests. Can you comment on tinnitus and how it fit into this? Um, um, well, well first, first being English, I call it tinnitus, but it's the same thing. Um, secondly, I have it quite loudly myself, even at the present time. I, it sounds like a hiss, like this. Um, the first time it came on, about four years ago, I live in an old apartment in New York. I thought it was steam escaping from the old steam pipes. But then the hiss followed me into the street. And like someone with a music operation, I had to say it's obviously being generated by my ear, my brain, somehow. Um, uh, interestingly, um, like a musical hallucination, uh, it always seems to be outside. Um, in, uh, in Hard Times, in the Dickens novel Hard Times, Mrs. Gradgrind, one of the characters, is asked if she is in pain. And she, she thinks, and she says, there's a pain somewhere in the room. <laughs> now, um, now, of course, that's absurd with pain. Either you have it or you don't have it. But with tinnitus, it is like a hiss or a tone somewhere in the room. Um, it's quite common... Um, in my own case, I think it's probably associated with some deafness. It doesn't get worse. It doesn't get better. I'm only conscious of it when the subject is raised. Thank you. <laughs> um, and um, now, um, if it were louder or more intrusive, if it were 80 decibels instead of 15 decibels, uh, then I would seek for some mask, sort of masking device. Um, uh, again, if you do functional brain imagery, you can show that various parts of the brain become active in tinnitus. Thank you. I'm glad your lecture raised so many questions because my first question was about tinnitus. <laughs> my second question, though, um, you gave the example of, of Woody, I believe, and, and then a, a Shakespearean actor who could remember vast quantities of what they had. Could they learn anything new? Um, uh, um, that's a very good question. Um, the, um, there is, uh, even in such people, even in amnesiacs, an ability to acquire, um, I don't want to use the word information, uh, but, but there's an ability to acquire skill and power to perform with repetition and with training and with rehearsal, even though the person will have no explicit memory of the training or the rehearsal. And uh, so the, the repertoire can increase. Now, I'm not even sure whether remember is the right word. Um, in a sense, someone, um, I mean, when you walk, you are not remembering how to walk. You, you're just walking. Um, and... Uh, um, uh, and in general, when you know, um, typically say, um, I, I mean, a, a common example of this we all have, well, many of us have, if we've played a musical instrument in a piece, then 30 or 40 years later, the piece may still be there. One speaks of muscle memory or something like this. Um, but, uh, but yeah, some, some innovation is still possible. Hi, Dr. Sachs. How do you help your patients? Do you prescribe medication or counseling? 
or surgery or um, what do you do to help them? I'm, I'm sorry, for, for, for what patients? The people that you talk about, your case studies, the people oh, that have um, problems. Well, that's a, that's a very wide question. I, I, I mean, I will, you know, I will try and do whatever is appropriate. And sometimes, you know, this will involve giving medications, you know, perhaps anticonvulsants if people have seizures or, or L-dopa if people have Parkinson's. Um, but I will also um, uh, occasionally refer a patient to one of my surgical colleagues. Um, and um, But I will also try and make use of music, of gardens, of, uh, of psychotherapy, of, um, of, uh, of whatever. Um, I, um, I mean, one has to uh, listen to the patient and somehow do what's appropriate and not force oneself on the patient. Um, I think one also has to realize that every, if anyone has had a condition for any length of time, it becomes part of their life and part of their identity, and, um, and you have to respect that. Uh, so, so basically, I mean, the only rule in medicine is tact. Thank you. Hi. I'd like to ask on behalf of a great many people who have been through a similar experience, whether you or if you know anyone in the neurological community, has any information to help people who are musical and after going through an episode involving lights, sounds, visions, vibrations, euphoria, and metaphysical preoccupation, then cannot bear to listen to music. Um, I'm missing some of this gone through some experience and then they can't a whole variety of possible experiences and then they cannot bear to listen to music anymore. Oh yeah, right. Um, yeah. Um, I'm sorry, it should be apparent to all of you I'm fairly deaf myself <laughs> and I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I'm awaiting the onset of hallucinations. Um, yeah, um, um, no, um, the, there, are, there are various conditions in which the emotional response to music may change um, uh, just the other day I was speaking to someone who said that whenever they have a severe migraine, uh, they can't bear music, and music they would normally love becomes hateful to them. Um, th- I've heard similar stories of this happening um, after head injuries and concussions and with people with strokes. Sometimes there is a reversal of... Uh, uh, of emotional reaction, but sometimes emotional response may be lost, and there are people who um, who used to be in love with music and who, after having a stroke, may say, "Yes, I recognize all the music they their powers of their cognitive powers are are, are are the same, but there is no emotional accompaniment and interestingly, this can happen even if emotional response to everything else is perfectly normal. And so it's almost as if there's a, a special networks involved in emotional response to music. And one perhaps sees this the other way round, because there's certain conditions, and this gave rise to the title of my book, Musicophilia, Love of Music, 
there are some conditions which may cause a sudden, which may arouse a sudden passion for music and sometimes a sudden uh, talent for music in people who have been indifferent to music or other unmusical before that. And so, so music seems to have its... Um, uh, but I think if one has, something has happened and one has lost one's taste for music, you have to be patient and it'll come back. Well, good luck with your upcoming uh, hallucinations. Oh, thank you. On a, on a lighter side, um, I've, I'm susceptible to the musical worms you're talking about. And usually I can play something else and it'll, it'll, I, I can manage to get myself out of it. But occasionally I have them for days. And occasionally they're, oh, jingles from the 50s or something like that. And I'm, I'm curious about that I can go to sleep with the jingle and then I wake up with the same jingle. Was it playing all night? <laughs> That's very disturbing to me. Uh, I, I, I missed at the end. You say, was it playing all night? You said something after that. Yeah, I, I go to sleep with the jingle. Okay, go ahead. Yes. And then he wakes up. It's still there. It's a new Did he, was it playing all night? Um, <laughs> well, um, I... Um, uh, if um, if you knew the answer, you wouldn't ask the question. Um, if um, uh, I mean, as a start, I think one might, as, you know, if you had, you know, an EEG or functional brain imaging in the night on EEG, one might be able to tell. I suspect that it might, in fact, have been playing for much of the night, because um, uh, um, typically people with, say, musical hallucinations um, may um, turn on the real radio and listen to that and then this will take the place of the hallucination but when they turn it off they will find the hallucination is going on but as it were four minutes later uh, as if it has been going on underneath and um, I, I suspect that that's happening um, incidentally I've corresponded with one musician a, a concert violinist who is still able to give concerts while entirely different music is being hallucinated. Um, but I, um, I, 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 I strongly suspect that things are, are going on. Thank you. Dr. Sachs, I'm interested in uh, Asperger's syndrome and autism and their relationship with music. Uh-huh. I believe somebody said once that maybe you're a sufferer also of Asperger's syndrome. They said what? Oh, really? That's interesting. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I should say, you know, people in the Tourette Syndrome Society consider that I have Tourette's. And, um, and my Asperger friends consider I have Asperger's. And my bipolar friends consider that I'm bipolar. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm an honorary member of many societies. <laughs> but anyhow. Yes, uh, do you by any chance have any... Uh, pet theories or off-the-record theories as to why the occurrence of autism, it seems to be spiking right now to the point where I think it's one out of 155 persons in the United States and a similar record in, in Great Britain is occurring and perhaps more places in the world? Um, well, I, 
I don't, but I, I will think aloud a little bit. Um, and um, first of all, it's not clear that, the, that this is a real increase. It may simply be that the diagnosis is made more often, that the term has become sort of fashionable. Um, uh, the um, uh, I, I'll, I'll mention, I'll give you a little story which may have some analogy. Back in 1971, I first saw someone with Tourette's syndrome, and at that time, Tourette's syndrome was said to occur in one and a half a million people. The day after seeing that person, I saw three people with Tourette's in the streets of New York, and the day after that, another three, and the day after that, two. And I realized I must have been seeing people with Tourette's all my life, but failing to recognize them. And I suddenly thought then, could Tourette's be a thousand times commoner than it's supposed to be? And the answer is yes, it is. So that now Tourette's is seen as having an instance of one in two or three hundred, whereas before it was one in two or three hundred thousand. Um, with synesthesia, you know, seeing colors or whatever with music, um, there's been a very recent paper uh, which has indicated that synesthesia is close to a hundred times more prevalent than was thought just two years ago. This is not a real increase. It's simply that um, it's being much more recognized and much more acknowledged. However, having said that, there might also be a real increase of autism, and um, I don't have any pet theories. I don't think there's anything much to support the idea of injections containing mercury. Um, I do think we're on a filthy planet um, and it's getting worse by the day and hotter um, and maybe this has something to do with it. Um, I was intrigued by a theory. Um, there's apparently a great deal of autism in Silicon Valley um, and it was suggested that the brilliant nerds who went there might themselves have had a few autistic traits without actually being clinically autistic. But then when they fell in love and married each other, these autistic <laughs> traits were, were concentrated and they had clinically autistic children. Um, but, uh, but having said all that, I don't know. <laughs> Dr. Sachs, what kind of music would you have a person who is bipolar, has schizophrenia, and anxiety, what kind of music would you have them listen to besides Bach and Baroque classical music? Um, well, I think it would be up to them. I, I mean, possibly Schumann, because he was bipolar and maybe schizophrenic, but... Um, or maybe that would be the worst possible. Um, Marla's pretty, pretty um, far in that direction as well. Uh, sorry. Uh, Dr. Sachs, does one's uh, hallucinations depend on the personality? Um, the um, much less so. Uh, in fact, I would say, um, well. Uh, do you mean to the particular hallucinations or the or the t 
tendency to hallucination. I mean, I mean, um, anyone can get musical hallucinations. I don't think this depends on the personality. But the actual hallucinations which occur uh, will obviously be influenced by, you know, the life one has had and perhaps what one likes and dislikes. Um, I think the answer is to some extent, although I'm actually more struck by the sort of cultural preference so that, say, um, uh, people in the 1940s tend to hallucinate songs which were popular at that time. The top ten of the 1940s become the top ten of the cerebral cortex. Um, and, uh, um, but obviously particular things do come in. I recently saw uh, a man, an, an elderly surgeon with, um, with musical hallucinations, um, and mostly of um, you know of Beethoven concerti and things, but on one occasion he heard a song uh, which his mother had sung uh, when he was seven or eight. The song which had to do with departure, nostalgia, and this this affected him intensely. So I, I, so I think at this point, as it were, a physiological mechanism is going to meet the individual and their own tastes, and, and some sort of uh, compromise will be reached. Thank you. So, for about a month and a half, we've been de- I've been dedicating a few hours every day to physics and math. Only instead of being able to concentrate on physics and math, I've been hearing songs in my head. You know, it doesn't have to be any particular song. It's a song that I listen to, whether I like it or not. And what's your hypothesis as to why, instead of concentrating on velocity, acceleration, and cubic functions, I'm hearing Blues Brothers singing Jailhouse Rock? Um. I, I, was, I, I hoped you were going to say that the songs you heard were assisting your, your studies in physics and math. Um, the, um, incidentally, the only um, story I can think of which relates a physicist to a song um, is with regard to Galileo, who, um, who was very musical, and, um, and also watches were sort of bad at that time, and he would measure the acceleration uh, of objects as they rolled down inclined planes by singing a melody, and the singing was so accurate that he could time this much more. But, but you know, um, whether you are, as it were, this may be something you need to discuss with your analyst. Um, um, uh, I, I mean, um, uh, whether in fact you are sort of, to some extent, evading your, you know, what you should do by, by little indulgence in music, I don't know. Uh, well, what's your theory? <laughs> I, I, I mean, maybe it's telling you that you need to be a musician. I mean, it's a little bit of both. <laughs> I don't know. I've always wondered if, when you have perfect pitch, uh, what happens if the first A you hear is out of tune? Oh. <laughs> um, sorry. Um, that's, a, that's a very clever question. I, <laughs> I, um, I hadn't thought about it. I, uh, um, I'm not sure that but I'm not sure that a situation like that could, could, could actually exist. 
first A being out of tune. I'm, I, 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 I can't think that through. Um, incidentally, um, people with, with absolute pitch um, tend to identify and name pictures as the rest of us identify and name colors without reference to any, any other standard. Um, uh, absolute pitch can change with age and with disease and, uh, you know, it can come down a semitone or something like that. Um, it's not entire, it's not always fun having absolute pitch. Um, uh, uh, one of my subjects, a composer with absolute pitch, was driven mad by my piano. I have an old piano with the original strings and it, it's not tuned up to 440. And he immediately says it's a third of a tone flat, and he couldn't bear the um, the contradiction between the sound of the piano and what he wanted to hear. Um, so I I can't answer your question. Incidentally, I, I will mention that the original title of the book was not Musicophilia, but was the title of what is now one of the chapters. In the chapter on absolute pitch, describes a little boy in the 1880s with absolute pitch who said, Papa, only think, he said, Papa blows his nose in G. <laughs> uh, thank you. Dr. Sachs, many of us uh, work with or care for people who are at that very end of their life. There's a study of medicine called music thanatology. It's a graduate program in music. I'm wondering, have you speculated on the role of music or more more like tones or rhythms when the cerebellum is no longer working? Maybe it's, as you said, the deeper brain functions. Any thought on end of life and tones or music? Um, um, I'm intrigued that there should be a, a musical thanatology. Um, I've only got 29 chapters in the book. But if there were 30th, maybe I should have music and dying. We would love and, that. Um, and the 31st would be music and madness. Um, they're not subjects I, um, I, I, I really know about. But, um, you know, the, cere- the cerebellum wouldn't be dying. I, I, I mean, the consciousness goes first. You, can, you know, the cerebellum will sort of go on. Incidentally, there is some evidence that people in coma... Uh, will respond to music and I think it's important when people are in coma to provide music and also to avoid saying anything you wouldn't want them to hear yeah that's my experience in about 15 years that I I feel that people do do hear or sense in some way even moments before they go so thank you yes um on a more fundamental level than, than music, um, some of the research studies show that screaming at children when they're very young uh, and inducing fear in them that way can affect their neurobiological development in terms of their brain. Oh, and that's, wait, I'm sorry, I missed that. So, that screaming at children and instilling fear in them, you hear that screaming? Yes. Okay, right? um, can affect neurobiological changes in their brain. And I'm wondering whether or not instead of music that maybe it's a level of sound that the human uh, brain uh, intakes that maybe affects the development of it as opposed to just perhaps music itself. You may have to say that again. Okay. If I, 
if I if you spent this lecture screaming at the audience as opposed to talking in a warm tone as you did, you would affect people. Some people would walk out. Right. Okay. So, you understand what I'm saying? And so, but so I'm talking about whether is it just the sound that affects the brain, or is it something, or is it the music and the and the tones that music has, as opposed to just the loudness of the words? Too much? Um, well, well, too little. Um, <laughs> the, um, I, I'm, I'm still actually, I'm afraid, not quite sure what you're saying, but I, but I think sort of, um, I can't imagine that screaming is is very good for for the nervous system, um, or, or, or although it may resolve matters rather rapidly one way or another. Um, uh, the um, for some reason, as you were talking, I. I found myself thinking of a movie which was made in 1970 or so called called The Music Child, um, which shows an autistic child screaming incessantly and intolerably and um, perhaps hurting its own nervous system and everyone near it. But music is played and gradually the screams become more rhythmical and finally the, the child is singing. I mean, it's a remarkable example of, uh, of screaming being turned into singing and everyone is happier. But I'm, I'm, I'm afraid I may be avoiding your question, but I, okay. I, don't, I didn't quite follow it. Yeah. Well, I'll follow up uh, with that with uh, saying my son's first sentence, uh, complete sentence, was saying, Mommy, please don't sing any more lullabies. <laughs> so I won't sing here tonight. But my question is, you mentioned that Alzheimer's patients react positively at times to listening to music. Is there anything to support the idea that listening to music may help prevent the formation of the plaque of Alzheimer's or if there might be a positive benefit to that? Um, I, I don't know of any such information, although in general, um, you know, there was a famous study, sometimes called the Nun Study, uh, which um, compared the um, incidence of Alzheimer's and its effects in um, intellectually sophisticated literate nuns and, um, uh, and others who were not so much that way. And it certainly seemed that the intellectual nuns who were intellectually active had more in the way of cerebral resources and even though they might get Alzheimer's there was um, you know there was more brain there um, but coming back to your question um, there was a lot of talk at one time about the so-called Mozart effect um, in which supposedly listening to Mozart for a time would improve all sorts of intellectual functions um, uh, there's no evidence for that um, there is some evidence that intensive musical training uh, may help other other intellectual powers in children, but um, I, whether it can stave off Alzheimer's, I, I doubt. Thank you. My freshman. Oh, oh we got some. Okay, yeah, go up above. Um. Does atonal or 12-tone music have a different effect on the brain um, than tonal music? Yeah. Um, um, interesting question. I, um, I don't know, but, it, um, and, uh, but I suspect it's being, being studied. Um, 
I did have one correspondent who told me that she had seizures only, quote, with modern dissonant music, um, which her husband insisted on playing. Um, but um, I, um, uh, I, 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 um, I mean, perhaps behind your question is the notion of, of, of whether some music is, or some scales or some musical conventions are more natural than others. Um, uh, I, um, I, I, I think people will, will learn any convention and become used to it. And, uh, you know, that once, once people are, you know, are on a 12-tone or 8-tonal mode, then... But I, but I don't know. It's an interesting question. Thank you. Uh, just two more questions because we're kind of out of time. So here and there. Go ahead. You're hot. Okay, so my freshman year in high school, I ran a little experiment in my biology class. I'm sure many people in this room uh, either know about it or have done it. In, it. in my experiment, I had several pea plants. All the variables were the same. They were given the same amount of water at the same time of day. They were all given, uh, they all received the same amount of daylight, uh, and so, so on and so forth. But the only different variable was uh, each plant, each pea plant, uh, in my experiment, was listening to a different type of genre of music uh, for 24 hours for the next three weeks. I had one that I had one plant listening to rock music for three weeks. I had one that was listening to jazz. I had one t- listening to classical music, and I finally had one that was listening to polka. My question was, <laughs> can you shed any light into the effects of music? onto plants, if there are any, and can you tell me why my polka plant died? (laughs) Um, Well, I mean, um, uh, had you said that, you know, you were were, uh, exposing one plant to Wagner, um, then I would have understood why it died. Um, um, No, um, but actually... um, uh, well, you haven't told me what the results of your experiment were, apart from the, uh, the plant which died. And Darwin himself wondered uh, whether music would affect plant growth and vitality, and he had someone come in and play a trumpet to his cabbages. Um, but, uh, you know, there was really no good double-blind, and... Um, he, uh, he didn't feel it had any effect. Did you feel that music had any effect? I mean, did you feel that this was a, a worthwhile experiment? You must have done, otherwise you wouldn't have done it. Um, well, uh, I'm right over here, doctor. <laughs> well, uh, I thought it was a worthwhile experiment, but uh, in the end, oh, uh, the results were that the one that was listening to classical music uh, was the one that was the uh, tallest and seemed healthy, but uh, like I said, I was a freshman in high school, right. so... Um, oh. I, 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 I mean, you, you, know, you would also have had to have had sort of equalization of, of, of so many things, of volume and this and that. I mean, I, I think it would be... And yet, it's sort of, it's... Um, uh, Rachmaninoff describes how in the studio um, a spider would come down from the ceiling whenever he played a particular Chopin etude and at, and at no other time. And uh, so if a spider, why not, why not a cabbage? Okay. Thank you. Okay. Last question. 
Oh, I, I'm sorry. I thought you were pointing to. Yeah, no, yes. was, uh, okay. Good evening. So you've mentioned throughout your talk that music has this interesting duality where it's essentially a bunch of waves, but most of us relate to it on a very emotional level. I was wondering, in your case studies, what part of the brain seems to be triggering all these musical phenomena? Is it a physical reaction to the music itself, or is it something that is more closely linked to the emotional content we give the music? Um, well, um, For uh, example, yeah, go on. When, the, when people are having musical hallucinations, is it the, are, is it like they're hearing the music again, or is it they're almost feeling those same things again, and that is triggering that music? Um, well, um, both um, the uh, I mean the the feeling of sadness or joy with them can trigger you know a, a music which goes with it. The um, the emotional response to music goes with activation of particular parts of the brain. Uh, and what are sometimes called the reward systems of the brain, which are also activated by by um, by being in love and by drugs and um, and perhaps with our friend up there by physics and mathematics if he if he ever gets to like them um, the um, uh, i i 've forgotten an earlier part of the question or what, what was the first thing you brought up? It's, it's all one thing, just whether we're more responding to the physical, like, waves hitting our eardrums um, or to a, well, well, association no. we've uh, made. Um, no, no, I mean, we, music, music doesn't exist in the external world any more than color or pain. I mean, it is a construct of the nervous system. It's a construct which, you know, requires very complex stimuli uh, and very, very complex processing equipment in the brain. And um, uh, and there also seems to be uh, separate equipment, both for the cognitive appreciation of music and for the emotional response to music. Uh, incidentally, um, someone asked a question before about Asperger's syndrome. Some people with Asperger's syndrome may be highly musical, but not react to it emotionally. One friend of mine with Asperger's came to New York she was a concert of Bach two and three part inventions and I said how did you like it and she said they were very ingenious and I said well yes but but did you enjoy it and she only repeated that they were very ingenious and wondered whether Bach would have been up to four or five part inventions and uh, as far as I could see with her there was a sort of a, an intellectual pleasure whatever that means in the pattern but no real emotional response at all Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Okay. Thank you. Is, uh, he'll be signing books out in the lobby here in a bit. You're still...